epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. See how to elevate your live sports experience at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply. Welcome to this week's play-by-play of the Hang Time Podcast. Backing down a lefty hook, takes it in! With your host, Elliot Anderson, stuffed it down behind his head. Seku Smith, the tipping is good at the buzzer. Now it's time for the tip. There goes the neighborhood. <laughs> Look at this. Who let the who let the the door open for this cat? Who let the dog in? <laughs> the Hang Time Podcast at NBA.com. Seku Smith, your host, joining you alongside my co-host, who's normally miles and miles away, Lang Whitaker. At least, at least Slam Magazine has joined us today. At least I'm miles away in spirit, usually. <laughs> Now he is here in the flesh, Langston. What's happening? How are you, sir? I'm good, man. Good to see you. Uh, welcome home. Thank you. I mean, I'm not sure everybody understands it. This is uh, yeah, this is home. These were your stomping grounds for a long time, and then that whole legal thing came up, and you had to flee the state. Yeah, so. I went to New York. <laughs> Been there for a while. Still there, but I'm here today. Yes. So I thought we'd yes. come in. You guys have welcomed me well. I appreciate it, Mike yeah. and Christy, and yeah, Sakers welcomed me in here by working on his laptop the whole time, <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> You're not exactly doing research for the show as you do, <laughs> but no, it's uh, it's funny you, for you, for a long time we always talk about Atlanta mm-hmm. via text or email or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know if what have I seen you maybe ten times in all the years I've known you in Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to Atlanta once this year, and it was to do the beat with you back in right. March on NBA right. TV. Um, yeah, so I just haven't been in town in a while, yeah, but man, I came well. in. Came in to see you guys today. Yeah, we appreciate it. It's good to see you. Your Georgia Bulldogs got off the snide. I should have known something was wrong. It's a rebuilding year. Yeah. <laughs> I know all about rebuilding <laughs> years. Um, listen, I don't know if you've paid any attention over the weekend, but last late last week, nice little conversation got started. Um, Michael Jordan saying that he could score 100 points yeah. in, in a game, you know, in today's NBA. He also talked about Kobe, you know, being a top 10 guard. It's been all over the internet, obviously, all weekend. First, Kobe's just a top ten guard. I mean, you. Well, he is a top ten guard. <laughs> yeah, among other things. Yeah. I mean, so I guess it was a factual statement. But I mean, do you agree that he, you know, that you can categorize him well, as a top ten guard and kind of leave it at that? Or you think that was? I don't know if it was a slight by Jordan so much as, you know, he's never going to come out and say, "Yeah, Kobe's right there." And, you know, after me, he's the, you know, he's, he's the best dude. He's never going to say that. 
No. And I think now even more so because he owns the Bobcats. Right. You know, <laughs> now he's in owner mode a little bit. Right. He's talking trash and like right. this is, he's going to do what he can to help his team out. And, you know, it, 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 people aren't talking about the Bobcats. They're talking about him. Right. So uh, and he can handle that. Yeah. So you uh, you see him being able to score 100 points in a game in this? I don't know about that. <laughs> I like to see him try. That's what I say. Yeah, you know? That'd be my favorite part. Is that would be really interesting. I want to I want to hear the announcers go off of like have Marv, yeah, you know, do that game. Yes, <laughs> I would love that. Jordan from three. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, it's, I just thought it was a two things that stir up passion yeah. about the NBA to me that are so funny generational if you say anything about michael jordan there's like this whole legion of mm-hmm. people of our generation mm-hmm. who say hey, you know it's greatest of all time mm-hmm. do whatever he wants to do blah blah you know what i mean mm-hmm. and then there's this group of people who are younger than us i would argue that now kobe is their michael jordan you right know, there's a generation of people who as far as they're concerned kobe yeah is is on his way to being that greatest of all time which is interesting because I'm sure when we were watching Jordan, we figured, especially at the tail end of his career, you're thinking, man, there'll never be another dude like Jordan. You know, like, yeah. what are the chances of another Jordan coming along? Well, some people think he's playing now. I don't know. I don't know about that. I don't know. I think he's, you know, he's probably the closest there is to Jordan right, right now. And um, he hasn't won as many rings. And, right. You know, and I, and I think I, I've grown to appreciate Kobe more and more like the last six, seven years. Absolutely. And I think – in a, in a weird way, it took him breaking down a little bit to see how good he was. Yeah. You know, like he didn't rely on the athleticism as much, and right. he's gotten so much smarter about the way he plays and expending his energy, and he makes the shots when he needs to make them. And, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, they win. They win games, and he figures out how to win yeah. and get a way to win. Um, and I, I, people were like, you know, remember early on, they were like, oh, Kobe, he's just copying Michael. He's doing, he's doing exactly what Michael did, yeah. the fist pumps and everything. But – a, what's so wrong about that? And B, <laughs> I don't think he's exactly copying Michael. But, um, you know, Jordan was the first to do it, and he's always going to be the first to come along and at that swingman two-guard position and, and be the guy, yeah. you know. I don't, so. I'm, it's weirds me out because I had to be kind of, dra- you know, dragged into the Kobe camp by Tyron yeah. Lue, who you know well. Because yeah. um, we used to sit and have arguments about it, and I was always kind of fighting this idea that, that – you know, Kobe should be in that stratosphere with, you know, all-time greats. This right. is before, obviously, the breakup of the Shaq-Kobe right. Lakers or the Kobe-Shaq Lakers, however you want to, you know, <laughs> categorize them or anything. Um, but like you, I've grown to appreciate Kobe even more now. Yeah. And I, it's less about his game changing as much as it is. It just seems like he's become a better leader. Yeah. You know, and and been a guy who's a better teammate probably the last few years compared to what he was when he was kind of impetuous and he was younger. How much of that do you think is us growing? I hope it's not too much of that because, I mean, yeah. I'm – I mean, do you think we appreciate basketball differently than we did? By, I, I mean, I'm sure question, we do. Yeah. I'm sure, we, you know, we've learned more about basketball in the last – you know, every day we learn more. But right. I wonder if now we can appreciate Kobe differently because we are smarter about basketball than we were before. It's weird. It's like we <laughs> – That's arguable. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird, though, because – People always talk about that, how, you know, when you grow alongside your yeah. – whoever your contemporary yeah. is, in, be it music or mm-hmm. sports, whatever, your perspective is different than mm-hmm. the historical perspective might be or the people who are older than you yeah. who look at it and, like, uh, you know. 
and we're kind of caught in that middle. Of, you know, mm-hmm. if you're a late seventies or an eighties baby, you're kind of caught in the gray area. Yeah. You know, like Jordan was a little bit older than us. Kobe's a little bit younger than us. You know, yeah. what I mean, so we kind of, I think we kind of leached on the two different generations, really. Yeah. Um, Best of both worlds. Yeah, exactly. So, it, I, I think it's a, uh, it's clearly we're a week away from the start of the regular season if we're having who's better between Kobe and Michael debates. <laughs> so, like, we obviously need uh, the season to get rolling. Um, but onto the show, uh, the Hangtime Podcast, as always, uh, Seku Smith and Lang Whitaker here. And, uh, Lang, we got, we've had some interesting conversations the last few weeks, you know, perspectives about basketball and history and that sort of thing. Now we're going to dive into a different realm with, with our next guest. Um, and uh, Kevin Pelton from Pro Basketball Perspectives joins us now. Uh, and I, I thought I didn't need stats class. The minute I got done with it in college, I was thinking, all right, good, I'm done with this stuff. I'll never see it again. And, and then Kevin and these guys come up and, and make me go back scrambling for my notes trying to figure out how to, you know, decipher all this stuff. So, Kevin, how you doing, man? It's good to have you on the show. Uh, I'm good. Thanks for having me. And, and hopefully the book is still more fun than stats class. <laughs> well, it is, Kevin. Uh, hey, what's up? It's Lang. I, you know, I can tell you, last year Kevin sent me a copy of the book, and, and I, ca- I can't even do long division. Like, I'm, I'm <laughs> the least math-related person alive. But the book is I, – I was very pleasantly surprised, Kevin, reading just because there's so much that you guys go into. I mean, the stats are a part of it, but it's only a part of it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and that's definitely a message we kind of try to to sell when we're you know doing doing interviews like this because people kind of get the impression, right. oh, you know, this, this, there's statistics involved, and, right. and there is there is a lot in there if that's what you're interested in, you know, and and a lot of uh, sort of resources along those lines. But if if you're looking for more of a scouting guide and, and things like that, and how each player did last season, what what to expect this year. You know that that's a big part of our focus as well. And I, you know, I grew up reading scouting guides. There weren't as many of them in the NBA, but the Rick Barry Pro Basketball Bible uh-huh. it was, you know, like one of my prized possessions when I was a kid. <laughs> so, you know, I, we're aiming for that same sort of thing in this. How, how did you get into the the advanced stats or statistical revolution side of things? You know, I I, I still don't know. Uh, <laughs> I always liked numbers, right? You know, always was kind of handy with math, and uh, was like vaguely interested in them as a kid. So I remember, you know, I I always used to get the Fleer and the Skybox cards, and I loved those because they had per forty-eight minute statistics on the back. Right. I I was into that even then, and uh, then really didn't do with anything much with it until I got to, you know, a little older and and started reading baseball prospectus at the time and Rob Nyer and and everything that got done on that side with the baseball statistical revolution and started wondering, well, you know, there's got to be someone who's doing this for basketball, right? And uh, found Dean Oliver's stuff and eventually John Hollinger and, and all those guys who have sort of uh, paved the way. Kevin, what's the what's the biggest misconception about the numbers and the way they're crunched and, and kind of how they relate to the game? Because I know a lot of people look at it and, and they'll kind of dismiss it. Just, you know, say, well, you know, you can make these numbers say whatever you want them to say because we – I get in arguments with uh, NBA.com's John Schumann all the time where he kind of – he barks me down, whatever I'm saying. He goes, well, look, I got these numbers here to, to back up my argument. I mean, how do, what's, the, what's the part of it that the, the average fan misses about how these numbers work in relation to the game? You know, I would say that the biggest misconception is probably that 
there's a disconnect between putting up, you know, statistics and winning. So, you know, there, I think there's an assumption still because of fantasy sports and things like that, that, you know, they're all about, I mean, they are all about individual performance, but only in the context of how does this lead to a successful team and a winning team? Right. You know, that's, that's always kind of the goal is, you know, starting at the team level and breaking down why teams are successful and then breaking that kind of down into, into individual performance. So if there's something that doesn't translate into, you know, a successful team, then hopefully, you know, that's not going to be something we're going to value in the statistics that we do. Right. Did, did the, I, I love the, uh, the intro to the book where you kind of talked about the Celtics. Did they, did they blow up the computer last year? <laughs> Play, playing as awful as they did during stretches during the regular season and then making the finals? Yeah, to the extent that you have to rely on regular season to affect <laughs> performance, you, you couldn't do it at all with the Celtics. And and even, you know, as I pointed out in the introduction, the Lakers kind of did as well because they were so much better in the playoffs. So, you know, there's limitations to it. And I think that, you know, the, the people who are doing this for the most part have a healthy respect for what, what the numbers don't tell you as much as what they do. What what are the things the numbers don't tell you or what are the limitations you're, you kind of have to keep an eye out for? Well, I mean, obviously, the first thing is at the defensive end of the floor, the numbers that we have don't tell the story nearly as well as they do on offense. Right. You know, there's a lot of people working to get better numbers, and now we have access to things like synergies, you know, defensive statistics that are, are tremendously helpful. But still, there's a lot, you know, yeah. that's primarily something that I think that you have to, you know, scout and, and see with your eyes. So, you know, that that's a big one. Um what, what level of effort teams are putting in. I mean, there's the obvious one with uh, Boston and the Lakers last year that they weren't focused on winning games in the regular season. They were saving a little something for the playoffs. So, you know, that's something you can't tell. Uh, the impact of coaching, mm-hmm. you know, is, is one that's hard to kind of quantify, but you know it, you know it exists and and how important it is with Sometimes. someone... <laughs> Depends <Yeah>. on the coach. <laughs> <laughs> with, the great, with the great coaches, I mean... <laughs> You know, we were, we were having a conversation about this the other day at a conference that uh, nine NBA teams, people from nine NBA teams attended over the weekend. And, and I think almost all of us who are, you know, part of the statistical community have a great respect for coaches and how important their role is. And, uh, you know, some like, you know, we were talking about uh, Scott Skiles' influence on the Milwaukee Bucks defense. Right. You know, how do you quantify when a guy goes to the Utah Jazz and is playing in Jerry Sloan's offense that tends to create these great shot opportunities, things like that. So, yeah, I think those are some of the important limitations. Kevin, what team do you look at statistically and say, why why isn't this group of players better? Like, if you could take each individual guy's numbers, crunch them together and put them in a team context, like, who do you look at and go, why is this team not better than the, you know, than some of these parts? Mm-hmm. It's an interesting question. I, I would say, uh, may, I mean, maybe the Denver Nuggets to an extent. Mm-hmm. You know, they had that run to the conference finals two years ago, but they had they come out very well statistically. Were looking good last year, and then they struggled. And that's you know an example of coaching right there with uh, yeah. George Carl leaving the sidelines and being replaced by Adrian Dantley. So that had a really interesting effect on their ability to get to the free throw line that we talked about in the book. Um, you know this. In the, you know, Kevin, well, I was going to say, you mentioned Denver, and to me, that run they had two years ago, it was that had a lot to do with their defense and, you know, how 
aggressive they were defensively two years ago, yeah. and then they, they kind of slipped away from that last year. And maybe that goes a little bit toward, as you were saying, trying to quantify the defensive part of the game. I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot of individual offensive talent there and, and some good defenders as well when they're committed to that end as, yeah. as they were in that playoff run. Yeah, I, I'm, I always look at uh, specific players as well. Like I know there's this – the statistical community has this love affair sometimes with players that the average fan doesn't appreciate. Like guys that as basketball watchers and not just a, a guy who flicks on a game when the playoffs is on, but I mean a guy who watched the entire season. We have a healthy appreciation, Lang, myself – you know, Micah, everybody, for a guy like Shane Battier that, that normal fans would look at and go, eh, you know, he's kind of a role player, you know, he's okay. And then you look at his numbers and how they translate into whatever his team success is, and you go, man, is really valuable. Mm-hmm. How many different guys in the league are there like that, Kevin, where his value to his team is far greater than maybe the public perception of, of how good a player he is or what or, type of or player Or how about this, Kevin? Who's another Shane Battier that we should know <laughs> <Yeah>. about? Yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I think it's only probably a handful that are really, there's such a discrepancy. Yeah. I mean, Batty is an interesting guy because th- this came up a lot talking to people who are also at this conference who are doing baseball statistics. You know, a lot of what they, the research they did contradicted conventional wisdom and basically told the old guard, hey, you're, you're wrong. In our case, a lot of what we do is finding a way to quantify what coaches kind of already knew. Okay. Like, you know, QB Brown and and uh, Jeff Van Gundy, who are, you know, important guys to please, they always loved Shane Battier when they had him sure. on their teams. And, you know, so there was kind of that discrepancy between, you know, the the traditional numbers of, like, he didn't put up per-game stats right. and what, what fans maybe didn't see and then what coaches and, and now also some of the advanced numbers saw about Shane Battier. So, you know, at the defensive end of the floor, I think you look at guys like that. So, you know, maybe a Tabo Cephalosha started to get more credit last year as, a, as an elite defender, but I think that was something that was apparent in his impact on the Oklahoma City defense. And then still you look at kind of it's the money ball story of guys who are doubted because of what they look like. So, you know, <laughs> undersized post players, right. people like that. I mean, Dewan Blair was someone that we, we always kind of loved at basketball perspectives dating back to his college days and uh, – you know, had a had a very strong rookie season given where he was drafted. Yeah. I know Chuck Hayes is another one of those guys whose name always pops up. Hollinger has had him rated real high before. What uh, what kind of work, Kevin, goes into this? Like when you talk about the number of hours and the types of you know busy work that is involved with coming up with this stuff. Huh? Give give everybody an idea of how long it takes to to compile this research and then analyze it and go through all these numbers. Well, for the book in particular, it's a pretty long process. You know, we we started probably early to middle of July, uh, around the same time free agency was getting going. You know, I, you can't do too much before every before LeBron decided where he was going to go. Right. Also, had to, we were happy that the decision came fairly early, <laughs> but uh, you know, there was probably a good two weeks worth of compiling projections for. Uh, you know, we have how each player is projected to do next season and then, then taking that to the team level. And that's a complicated process. And then, you know, a, a good couple months worth of writing. Um, you know, I, I think one of the interesting things with, you, you know, going back to you pointing out Chuck Hayes is Hayes and, and to a lesser extent, Battier are examples of guys where, you know, the individual statistics that we do, like, you know, John Hollinger's PER, mm-hmm. 
we have a wins above replacement player is our big system. Mm -hmm. They don't even completely tell that story. And you've got to look at other factors like, uh, you know, net plus minus to see a player's team effect. And in, you can see that Hayes and Battier are two guys that consistently have a very positive effect on the Rockets. Mm -hmm. And then even lesser statistics like, you know, charges taken or, you know, now we have a better ability to track Chuck Hayes' individual defense, which is really the strength of his game, despite the fact that he's six six, which makes right. him a complete oddball. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's often looking at all these different things to paint a complete picture as opposed to just having one statistic or something like that. Where do you think all this is going, Kevin? I mean, you know, you've been around kind of since this made its way into the NBA the last couple of years, and now – you know, what's next? What is it going to become more commonplace? Will we hear guys on, you know, SportsCenter throw out a PER rating and everyone knows what that means? I think progressively over time you get closer to that point because, you know, people are more comfortable hearing it. Yeah. And especially as, as new fans kind of grew up with this, you see, uh, you know, the blogosphere, its rise the last five years has probably been a major factor. Sure. In, and people becoming more accepting of statistical analysis because you have a lot of people who are, are bloggers and have that kind of interest and background as well. Um, at this point, you know, five years ago, there was probably just Dean Oliver who was doing this for an NBA team. And now at least half of the NBA teams have someone doing some kind of statistical analysis in a meaningful way. And, and maybe, you know, about a quarter of the league really gives it a lot of value. Mm -hmm. At, um, so as, as far as what's next, you know, I, I mean, it's, I, if I knew at the statistical level what it was, I would be, uh, I would be pursuing that and not telling anyone else. <laughs> but one thing that we talked a lot about this weekend with the other NBA people who were there was, uh, you know, the fact that it, within the next couple of years, we're going to have video tracking in the NBA. Mm -hmm. And what, what, that's made huge changes in baseball with uh, being able to track at the pitch level and, and ball off the bat using video. So the possibilities are enormous at the NBA level. Um, we were all giving Dean Oliver a hard time because he was telling us that he already knows exactly what he's going to do when this uh, technology becomes available and how he's going to quantify it. And I, I don't know that anyone else is at that point, but he's ready to go. <laughs> I'm The other part of it that, that's really got me intrigued is so much of, you know, saying football or baseball is tendencies and, you know, tracking like, you know, it, for football's sake, like, you know, you track how a guy blocks on a certain player or what a guy does in a certain formation. Basketball would seem to be so much harder to get a handle on because so much of the game is about feel and freelancing and a guy doing something totally unexpected. I think about, you know, if you look back to the NBA Finals, Ron Artest is the last guy we would have expected to play the way he played in a game seven based on everything he'd done mm -hmm. up to that, you know, to play that way in a pressure pack moment. How hard is it going to be in the future to really get a good handle on that gray area? You know, the, the stats, what you see, and then a guy just doing something totally unexpected. To, I mean, I'm going to jump in for Kevin. Hanks. To me, it's like soccer more so because there's no stop. You yeah. Know, in basketball, I mean, in baseball and football, there's a pause after every play and mm -hmm. you reset and then you go again. Yeah. And in basketball and in soccer, it's it's a lot more on the – it's like jazz and you're trying yeah, to figure out where so to go. There's so much more of it that's a, that's a field thing. I'm wondering, Kevin, just how hard is it going to be to get your hands around those numbers and the way they relate and then some guy doing something just completely out of character, out of the ordinary? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of those places where you always have to have, you know, the value of coaching and the gut instinct and knowing right. that, yeah. you know, hey, this is Ron's night. Let's let's go to him. Let's, let's <laughs> it. Uh, I think what's going to be interesting is we, you know, the tendencies that we have right now are pretty much focused on what a player is doing with the basketball. So, you know, synergy sports and, and years of uh, advanced scouting and, and video work has kind of made coaches statistical analysts in a way that they don't even necessarily know because they're talking about, you know, this guy goes left 40% of the time and goes right. When he goes right, he's less effective or something like that, which is really using the numbers to, to tell that story. So now in the future, what we might be able to do is tell that, talk about those things about the entire game and not just who has the basketball. So screen setting and, you know, who's the best at moving away from the basketball, which is something we all watch and have, have some sense for, but being able to potentially quantify that is a, a fascinating possibility. Yeah. Has it, uh, has this made watching the games even more intriguing for you? You know, for, you know, you watch them as a fan and, you know, you root for your team or whatever it might be, but now when you're watching it for the, all the minutiae and the details you're looking for, does it make it an even better experience trying to keep an eyeball on all that different stuff that's going on? I think it gives you a different appreciation for it sometimes. And, uh, you know, I think about that in, you know, I've had kind of a unique experience in that I've done statistical analysis and then also kind of more traditional media work and, and a lot talking with coaches and things like that. And, and I think that in particular, you know, when you kind of combine those two perspectives, I think that is what gives you an appreciation for it. Cool. That sounds good, man. I, I, I love the, uh, Again, I, I love the concept, and, and the book is going to be fabulous. Um, the the weird part about it for us is we have to uh, really marry ourselves to this idea that it's a part of the game now. Like, I know a lot of traditionalists who think, you know, I'll let, I'll let somebody else mess with the stats. Right. I stood in the hallway at Phillips Arena last year, and, and Rick Adelman rattled off, you know, five or six hilarious one-liners about stats, you know, and how he kind of doesn't pay attention to them. And then five seconds later, Somebody else comes out and goes, uh, believe me, he pays attention to all the stuff. <laughs> yeah. like, you know, I mean, it's almost like this thing where people are afraid to admit, like, yeah, yeah. you know, we yeah. do pay attention to this stuff. So um, we didn't get an invite to the conference over the weekend, yeah, what Kevin. Was up, but, Kevin? Uh, <laughs> it sounds like it was fun. Yeah, I mean, if you want to start sneaking a, a flip camera or something in there and then sending us video back, we'd love to stick it on the hang time blog. Well, yeah, I'll talk to the organizer. <laughs> The Sloan Conference in Boston it, it, this spring is definitely going to be the place to be. I mean, the, yeah. the numbers of people who, who want to go and, and are, weren't even able to last year are pretty staggering at this point for something that began on the scale of, you know, 150 people uh, meeting about statistics one weekend. Yeah, well, uh, Lang and I, we plan on uh, doing the old wedding crashers thing there this year, so <laughs> be on the lookout for us, man. Uh, I, I won't tell. <laughs> Kevin, one last thing. Uh crunching the numbers and everything for this season is there a team that you think is gonna we should keep an eye on a surprise team or a player or what what anything jump out at you well you know i'm sure if you've gone over the book there's a few projections this year that uh, don't don't really conform to common <laughs> conventional wisdom a few surprising ones you know the the one that I really kind of believe and I think is, you know, we're really, really high on the Golden State Warriors, and I, I don't think that the projection itself is, is realistic, but I think that they're a team that could make a lot of noise that yeah. people aren't talking about. You know, if everything comes together right with so many changes and such a more positive attitude with Keith Smart and the new ownership, and, and there's some serious talent there. Yeah. 
Uh, they've, they've got to avoid the injuries that killed them the last two seasons. And unfortunately, Lou Hamilton breaking his finger is not really a great start on that. But uh, Steph Curry is definitely someone to watch this year at the individual level and, and a part of that for the Warriors. Sweet. Well, listen, Kevin Pelton, basketball, pro basketball prospectus, man. Thanks so much for coming on and joining us. Um, we'll be sure to uh, tout the book and keep an eye on this stuff all season long. And hopefully you can come back on with us later, man. That'd be great. Thanks for having me. And Thanks, uh, check out basketballprospectus.com to, yes, to find out more about the book. It was good to, so good to actually speak to you instead of on Twitter and email. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I uh, can't say put a face with the name, but a voice. we got a voice now, yeah. That'll work. That'll we're, work. We're moving toward it. Thanks, man. All right. Thanks for having me. Pro Basketball Prospectus, Micah. 2010-2000. It's the essential guide to the NBA season this year by Bradford Doolittle and Kevin Pelton. Lang. I'm I'm starting to wonder now. I'm gonna I'm gonna start crunching your numbers <laughs> and see. <laughs> I'm glad they don't have that for every fly. I'm, I'm glad we don't crunch the numbers for everything. Yeah, no. I'd I hate to see my efficiency rating for, uh, you know, getting to the carpool line on time. <laughs> or, you know, I just uh, I just crunched a few numbers and uh, 65 percent of Seku's sentences start with the word "listen." <laughs> <laughs> I crunched a few shrimp at lunch a few exactly. hours ago. <laughs> <laughs> you do listen. You've been running though. I was six for six. On yeah, the other. <laughs> you've been running though. You, I have. You know what? And Mike, I'm not trying to be totally ridiculous here, but I think this is the first time I've ever seen Lang. No, second time I've ever seen Lang not wearing a pair of basketball shoes when I've seen him. Seriously, <laughs> you, you're wearing actual just hard bottom casual. Well, then he pulls the socks up. Never I'm wearing. Mind. A.S. Roma. So- yes, never mind. Teams. He whips the socks out and rules. Soccer socks. But, yeah. Nice. But, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I guess I can't talk because this is probably, what, the third time you've ever seen yeah. me not wearing you look like you're going Jordans to or something. <laughs> <laughs> we are getting old. I think we are. <laughs> I think our perspective is changed. We're getting old. So. We're dressed like a couple old retirees in here. I know. We're going to go play nine holes of golf after this. Ridiculous. I'd actually do that if you want to play golf. I'd no, go. I don't want to play golf. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, I, the other part about – this entire, because really it's a revolution is what it is. It's like yeah. the NBA is kind of the last of the American major professional sports, I think. Because I know this is going on. They've done, they've done a lot of the stuff in hockey along these same lines. It's kind of the last frontier for, uh, you know, the stat community to come in and really get a handle of, hey, the, the, this is how you can study this game mm-hmm. aside from just some guy sitting in the gym going, this guy's got it and that guy yeah. doesn't. You know what I mean? That hunched. That hunch game that, you know, scouts have played for years. I mean, this gives a lot of different people a chance to go out and study the game and have an opinion about it and have a, a perspective on it that's legitimate. I think – and it's going to change. You know, like Kevin said, it's the blog community has really helped a lot. But I think – I mean, look now on – when you hear them on any baseball show and they talk about a pitcher and they'll mention his whip, you know. And you used to never hear it like that. It yeah. was always win-loss ERA and that's exactly. all. And now those kind of stats are coming into play and OBP for guys and stuff. And I think with basketball now, that's going to start happening. And, you know, these stats are going to come out. And, I mean, even now on box scores, you get plus minus. Right. Which you used to not have like two years ago. Right. And now that they keep track of that live. And I think, you know, these things are going to keep working their way into the game. And it's, you know, the one thing is it's going to make fans have to change. You know, fans like they're comfortable with this and it's what they are. But. If they really want to know the game better, there's a, there's these ways to do that, and yeah. you have to go a little bit out of your comfort zone. But uh, once you learn it, I think it makes you a smarter fan. Yeah, you're you're right. I mean, I remember when baseball fans they kind of drove it. 
yeah. themselves. Like it was just kind of a, yeah. the next logical step for baseball fans. And Bill James was putting right, out the book because, every year. Yeah, yeah, I mean, but now um, I think it's an interesting way to really dive into some of that other stuff, you mm-hmm. know, the minutia of the game, I like to call it, just because I've watched I don't know how many number of basketball games in my life, and I couldn't tell you what the fourth or fifth guy on the floor is doing sometimes because I'm so busy watching yeah. Kobe or, you know, whoever the, the main guy is. This gives you a chance to get a full understanding of the game. It also could help me with my uh, fantasy basketball team, which <laughs> has not made the playoffs in the four years I've been playing. So I don't even do fantasy basketball anymore. Mark Spears and a couple other got writers got me involved in this a few years ago. Yeah. And my team, like, they always make jokes like, man, do you even pay attention to your team? Like, are yeah. you watching this? I pick players based on who's good. Like, I could yeah. care less if they're good, you know, number crunchers, That's which is the problem. wrong theory. Yeah, yeah. you got to find guys <laughs> who fill the certain slots you need. Exactly. And all that. Yeah. I mean, if I, don't, I don't play because I, I, I barely can keep up with the NBA <laughs> to write about it every day, much less trying to keep up with my team and change lineups and all that stuff. So. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. – this is a to- like I said, it's a totally different avenue that, that I think we're heading down. Um, you know, but one that's that's definitely worth keeping an eye on in the future, and, you know, hopefully we'll have uh, Kevin back on again. Cool. All right, Lang, switching gears from, uh, you know, a hardcore statistical – analysis perspective whatever it is. I, you know I'm not I'm not the smart guy around here as everybody knows since I'm the butt of jokes all the time um but no seriously switching gears from from our conversation with Kevin Pelton uh now we're gonna kind of dive into this thing from a from another angle with uh renowned author and bestseller Chuck Klosterman who uh, we've been trying to get on the show for a long time and uh, maybe he can can lend some different perspective Hey, uh, Chuck, how are you? It's Sekou Smith from NBA.com. Hey, how you doing? Good, Chuck, man. what's up? Chuck, this is Lang Whitaker from Slam. and Oh, yeah, I've met you before. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm actually, you know, I'm doing a book with Brant right now. Oh, you are? Yeah, coming out in March. What, uh, Take a what, guess. What's the premise? Take a guess. Well, what? I'm guessing it's basketball, right? No. Or, sh- or shoes. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, it's a memoir about growing up as a Braves fan during the Bobby Cox oh, era. Oh, well. I guess uh, Brant would be the right person. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, I wonder if Brant would want to do a, a – well, he'd probably rather do an Auburn football or something. Oh, that's just, yeah, like a podcast or a book? Both, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Auburn football. Could you could you talk about Auburn football that long? <laughs> Brant could. Yeah. <laughs> he really could. Chuck, what, what are you doing now? Like, I mean, I, I, we see your name all over the place. We see your stuff everywhere, but – What's a, what's your official title right now? What are you doing these days? Well, I mean, I I mostly write books now. I mean, right. I still do freelance writing. Like I I'm just doing a story for uh, GQ on Jonathan Franzen. I mean, I mm-hmm. write for uh, various places. You right. know, but I have no contract with anything. I'm, I mainly write books now. That's kind of my primary thing. Sure. Yeah. Or, or what are you working on now, Chuck? Are you doing a, a novel again? Or I just finished a novel, okay. and that will come out next year. And then I'll start writing on another nonfiction, pro- working on another nonfiction project. Mm-hmm. Okay. When are you going to write a? Uh, Lang tells me you're a, a big college football fan. Mm-hmm. I'm a big Michigan fan. So mm-hmm. when are you going to write a, a book about how Michigan needs to dig up uh, an old coach and? Bring him back to life and coach our football team again. So you don't like uh, you, you don't like him around the spread like this. I, I think that they're really fun to watch now because Robinson in that offense is great. 
Yeah, it's fun to watch for the other team. Yeah, it's fun to watch for the other team when their offense well, look, is out I'm there. A, I'm an SEC football fan, and I've never cared for Michigan. I mean, I had no connection to watch. But to me, I'd rather watch them this season than any time in the last really? 10 years. Probably. Oh, me too. Yeah. I just think that this idea of running a 3-5-3 three, three in the Big Ten will not work defensively. I agree. They just get I beat agree. up up front. But. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm curious, though. Like, we've been talking about uh, all sorts of crazy stuff and how it all kind of is interconnected. And uh, I'm always stunned that people don't realize, you know, you look at sports, the NFL, college football, you know, the NBA, college basketball. What, what brings people together more on a, on a one day out of the year than college football? I know everybody goes, well, the NFL is the biggest money maker in this city. But you could go from Portland, Maine to Tallahassee, Florida, and anywhere in between, and there's like 10 to to uh, 80,000 people in college stadiums across the country on a Saturday. It's just weird to me culturally. Like, Well, people just care about it more. I mean, yeah. that's the sport they care about the most because unlike the NFL, college sports still have a real regional quality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, even people in, you know, uh, uh, you know, people in New Mexico are interested in how Nevada is doing or whatever, you know, it's right. like they, they sort of, <laughs> right. it represents this whole area. And because football is the biggest sport, and, and, and college sports still have a regional quality. It becomes this big regional thing that kind of creates kind of the collective unconscious of an area. You know? Yeah. I think it's closest to probably soccer in Europe. Right. Yeah. You know? yeah. And also because it's so limited. There's, it's once a week. Right, and, yeah. Yeah, and there's not much yeah. else. It's just always kind of intrigued me that, you know, it's the one sport where, like, you go around on a Saturday and anywhere you go in the United States, any state, there's going to, you know, there's generally going to be either, whether it's Division three, junior college, I mean, there's going to be a stadium full of people watching a football game, so it's yeah. just weird. Um, we should probably talk about basketball, Chuck. Not necessarily. <laughs> well, is this, has the podcast started? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> we don't, listen, we just tape, Chuck. We don't oh, care. Oh, you see, I thought, this was, I thought we were, this was just the beginning banter. I no, think. no, we don't care. We just roll we don't with do, it. We don't do banter. We don't do banter around here, Chuck. We just yap. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> but, uh, but no, I mean. The other thing that we've been kind of tossing around is just kind of this this phenomenon that has become the Miami Heat since mm-hmm. since the decision and and all this stuff. It's I'm trying to I'm trying to put a finger on what this team does to the NBA outside of the the NBA's normal track of fans. Like I have people who I who I know that don't even like basketball this summer, relatives who are like, hey, uh, what's the deal with this LeBron thing? And it's like, you don't even like it. Like, what do you care? But it's kind of captured people's imagination. Well, this has never happened in American sports, where a group of players made a uh, kind of a conscious and public decision to uh, sort of move their talents together in one spot in a way that actually seems like it could dramatically thrill the balance of the league. Uh, kind of off kilter. Uh, it, you know, if if this were to work, it wasn't like when the Celtics added, you know, three great players and they ended up winning the title. But uh, there was a lot of questions about the ages of those guys, and there was that period, you know, when Houston added, uh, you know, Barkley and Pippen and right. that team, and that failed. And there was a couple. I guess after that, there was the period where the Lakers added, you know, Carl Malone and Gary Payton, but those guys, you know, was late in their career. This is the first time where these guys. Or really at the top of their game, are kind of coming together, and it's not someone, it's not some puppet master do it, it's doing it, it's them. Now, I, I think that that for, in terms of interest for the NBA, like for, for not necessarily the competitive balance, but for 
the degree to which people care, right. this has been nothing but good. Because it, it's sort of, you know, when does any sport get really popular? It's when casual fans start paying attention. Right. I mean, that's why the NBA had that big spike during the height of Jordan, because people who didn't care about basketball cared about him. So people now care about this Miami Heat situation. And, uh, you know, I mean, is, is your question sort of why do they care? No, or, no, no. I'm just I'm wondering if this is that moment, that, you know, that w- this is the moment where this generation of the NBA appeals to all those fans you're talking about, these people that don't, that aren't traditionally basketball fans. I think, you know, what, what the, the reason people are so drawn to this is when you look at what are the, what are the flaws with uh, the NBA from an entertainment perspective? Well, uh, the flaw is within the context of almost any game during uh, the second and third quarter, and certainly within the context of the season at large mm-hmm. in terms of, say, February or March, mm-hmm. There's this period where it's very difficult to stay interested. Even if you love basketball, right. you will find a period in most games when it seems like um, it's just eating up time until you get to the end where it matters. You know, sure. and be- by building this idea of these super teams, that, that you know this, the Heat have this sort of this super team that that you know were Chicago say to go after and get Carmelo Anthony, and the fact that the Lakers have now added like you know, Steve Blake and stuff like this that. If you have these super teams, it's much easier for the casual fan to follow because they don't feel as though they have to really know what's going on with the Utah Jazz or whatever to be a well-rounded fan. <laughs> right. You can almost, you know, if you care about basketball, you still do. You're still going to be somebody who wants to know what's happening in Portland and all these things. But if you just sort of want to hang around and then decide in May and June <laughs> that you're going to care, it's much easier now yeah, yeah. because you really only have – Four teams. You're going to get some about? big trouble around here, Chuck, but keep going. Well, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I don't, but here's the deal. The people listening to this podcast probably aren't casual fans. Right. I mean, we're, we're really talking about people who aren't the kind of person who's not going to listen to this podcast. Right. <laughs> the kind of person. <laughs> That's most people. That's a lot. <laughs> Define some sad trombone music here. <laughs> no, but I think, Chuck, I think one thing you, you hit on a second ago is it's not just that there's these super teams that makes it interesting. And with Miami, it's how it happened. Yeah, yeah. And there's this undercurrent of like a, you know, there's this people think it was some dastardly th- plot <laughs> that these guys came together. And uh, and I think to to casual fans, as we're talking about, to that, that's the initial hook. Yeah. And now they're in. And, I, you know, I think once the season gets going, that becomes less the story than how they play. Well, you know, this has just been a trajectory of the league for forever, you know, that it was really in, I was going to say the 80s, but it was really into the 70s when the head coach started to have less control than the best players. Right. You know, that like Magic could get Paul Westhead fired sure. or whatever, you right. know, that sort of, and, now, and that has, has continued, and it's all because of pay disparity. There's just no way a guy making a million and a half dollars a year can tell anything to a guy making $19 million a year. It's just not going to work. Mm-hmm. And this has kept going further and further to the point now where the players are sort of so rich and to a degree so powerful that now not just us- they're not just usurping the head coach. They're really usurping management. Mm-hmm. That, you know, uh, uh, which is an interesting thing. I mean, if you're into labor you know, <laughs> relations, this is pretty rare in anything. Yeah. Um, I think that what would re- what would probably you know just talking about like the health of the league and the interest right. in the league, I really feel like this scenario would be the most kind of intriguing if if the Heat start out 
uh, immediately playing uh, as well or maybe even better than anticipated. I think they play Orlando twice very, very early in yeah. the year. Um, it would be interesting if they played the Magic and beat them by 38 or something. <laughs> and they got in this position where they did seem superhuman because what would likely happen then, as so often happens with teams like this, that if they win big against good competition early, as the season wears on, if they lose a game or two, it doesn't really register. They sort of think, well, we can just turn it up when we have to, you know. Right. But that doesn't work at the end. So it would be very interesting to see uh, that the Heat dominate the first half of the year, kind of play up and down, uh, relatively speaking, during the second half, although not so much that anyone sees them as anything less than the favorite, and then have them lose at the end. Right. I feel like there'd be like a lot of lessons embedded in that somehow. You know, I think they're probably likely to come out and play harder early on than L.A. or Boston because or, they don't really know what they have. Right, they yeah. got to kind of set a tone. Yeah. And those teams are, are a little more measured, and they understand that we're, we're working towards something bigger picture. But the Heat can get to that point, but I don't think they're there yet. Yeah. Does that make sense? Well, what will be interesting to see is this early on because, you know, what, what, what would be the easy criticism for why this wouldn't work? Kind of the superficial easy criticism would be you can't have – you know, two or three major scores on the same team. It just right. doesn't work out. So I wonder if in the beginning part of the year they're going to overcompensate and almost be too unselfish. Yeah. Like, a, like especially LeBron. Yeah. If he will attempt to prove that he can sublimate himself within this offense, you know. Uh. That's a good point. I don't, you know, the other thing that, that kind of surprised me is that for all the, the manner of craziness, like I remember when the BCS was an issue and some guy, some company from Europe was like, hey, we'll pay you a $100 million to have a playoff in college football. How could no one in Hollywood or in, in that part of the entertainment industry show up on the Heat's doorstep and say, hey, we'll give you this much money if you let us turn this into a reality show? I mean, this would be the ultimate sports-slash-entertainment reality show you could possibly have if you just – 18 episodes of the Heat before Christmas. No <laughs> Writing this barred. down furiously. You know, <laughs> no holds barred reality TV show about the Heat. Well, I mean, it, it, to me, that would have seemed like the obvious move for NBA TV. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was saying, too. Chuck, you get, mean, you're going to get us you're gonna get us canned around here, Chuck. Well, I mean, it's just, <laughs> they would have, you know, that's that's like when you watch the NFL Network. The NFL Network uh, is interesting because, in a way, you know, it's, it's almost like a supportive PR arm for the NFL. But because they're connected, they can kind of get anybody for anything. Right. I mean, they can get Bill Parcells to talk on something <laughs> for no reason. You know, they could make Bill Belichick talk because, like, the commissioner could say you're doing this. You know, so the NBA, NBA TV would be the one place they would be in a position where, if they convince David Stern, David Stern could just say this is going to happen. You know, but at the same time, I think that uh, that maybe, you know, the interest is already up. Right? There's already a, you know there was more interest in the NBA in July than I've ever remembered in my life. Right. Yeah. So it might be smart not to push it too far. <laughs> like, why, you know, it's like it's already – things are going well. Don't try to, like, you know, <laughs> to, to, you know to avalanche people with this. You know? Well, I, I've noticed, too, that the, the Heat have kind of back – you know, Wade and LeBron in recent weeks have kind of pushed back. Like, hey, you know, we're not the ones making this big deal about this. This is the media. This is the it's, there's going to be a, a, a breaking point, you figure, at some point. There's no way a team can put up with this kind of – spotlight and intrusion from the start of training camp, really from July until next June. Yeah. What they, What was there, 200 people at meet? 250? 250 credential media. At media day? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And last year there was something like 
12. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. Chuck, what, I want to switch topics for a second. What's, how did you grow up, like, watching the NBA, or what teams did you watch? You grew up in North Dakota, right? Or, yes. Yeah. Um, well, by chance, uh, the first year that I started watching the NBA was 1979-80. Um, I was born in 72, and that was the first season I sort of got into sports, both uh, uh, really seriously football as well. And that was right. a very interesting year to start watching the NBA because that was Bird Magic's first year. Right. That was the year they introduced the three-point shot. Mm-hmm. Um, there was uh, uh, – they're just, you know, coming off of the, the Michigan State, Indiana State, NCAA championship, I think CBS thought to themselves, well, maybe we can finally kind of – I mean, I think that their awareness of how those guys would change the league was actually much more uh, – I think they were much more aware of it from the inception than they sort of behave now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that was a weird time to be an NBA fan living in North Dakota because, <laughs> you know, the only – I got like – Is there one game a week on TV? No, or? one game a week, no way. There was like <laughs> six games a year, and the first game was the All-Star game. Okay. <laughs> They didn't show any games prior to that. There was no Christmas Day game or anything. So the first game would be the NBA All-Star game, which was the only, also the only time where someone like me could see players uh, from kind of strange markets, like, right. you know, see Alex English or, you know, whatever. Because for the, for the other five games, it was the Lakers and the Celtics, the uh, Celtics and the Sixers, yeah. um, usually two of those games. Uh-huh. And then there would be maybe like a Lakers – Suns or Lakers, you know, Rockets game, and then maybe the Bucks and the Sixers. So those would be the only games you would see up until the playoffs. Um, and there, would, I had there was no cable or anything. Right. I was on a farm, so the idea of having like the games shown locally when there was no local team because the Wolves didn't exist. Yeah. Um, when the Wolves came in, and when I was in high school, the Fox affiliate would sometimes show those games, the very early games when they had like you know Randy Brewer and and you know. Uh, uh, like Bill Musselman was the coach. Yeah. But so in a weird way, my NBA fandom was really fueled through reading. Mm-hmm. That I would, uh, I would we, got, we got the sporting news, and the sporting news was the only place that was running NBA box scores at that time. Right. I, you know, so I, would, uh, I, I, was really, I followed statistics very closely. I read a lot about the players from the 70s in books. Uh, uh, I have a, you know... I tend to know a lot about players I really never watch. You know, like I know a lot about Dave Bing and stuff like that. You know? And uh, and pr- so pretty much what I would sort of do is, from the little I would see, you know, I would just sort of imagine the rest. You know, I would mm-hmm. think about, you know, what Robert Parrish played like, and then I would get to see him a couple times, and I would see how close my imagination matched that. You know, um, it's actually uh, one thing that I really related to. This kind of off topic, but. I, 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 read, I remember reading something, I think it might have been in Rolling Stone magazine, where it was an interview with Kurt Cobain, and he was talking about how he had never heard punk music, but he read about it, like, in Time or Newsweek. So, like, he tried to play music from the way the article described it, uh-huh. <laughs> and I was sort of the same way, that my, that my understanding of, of sports came a lot through, like, reading Sports Illustrated. Right. Um, and my dad uh, did not like the NBA. He liked the Celtics, but that was it. He liked college basketball. And in fact, was often very wary about me <laughs> watching the NBA because he thought it would make me a bad player, particularly the NBA All-Star game. <laughs> yeah. So that first game of the year, which I would wait, you know, I would wait months to see. Right. And then about four minutes in, he's like, 
we're going to watch North Carolina and Duke. We're like, Kenya. We only had one TV. So. This is before Jordan, too, right? Before everyone oh, started carrying the ball. Yeah, I mean, that was uh, – I mean, this, it, it, the big thing was shot selection. That was the thing he was always against. He was sort of like if you watch the NBA, you won't know what a bad shot is yeah. because they take a lot of bad shots, and they always came close. Yeah. So, I mean, I really liked George Gervin a lot. He was one of my favorite players growing up. But uh, uh, my, my father was very reticent about how <laughs> me, my attempts to be like George Gervin would be detrimental. The Iceman. Some tells me that uh, the, the NBA All-Star Game is never really instructional video time. <laughs> well, no, especially since, like, as, and as it evolved, it actually began, it became the game that my dad claimed it was before it was. Like, my dad would say things like, you don't need to watch that. It's a bunch of guys trying to throw bounce passes off the backboard, which yeah. wasn't really true. And then, like, in 1990 or something, I think that was the opening, after the opening cap, Isaiah Thomas tried to throw a bounce pass. It was like, it actually happened. Like, all of these things. Um, yeah. <laughs> Do you, wh- how else, now that you, you know, now that you can see video, of those guys you watch or that you imagined, how did the NBA of your dreams, uh, in retrospect, match up to the real NBA at the time? How did the NBA of my dreams match up to the real NBA? Um, <laughs> hmm. Um, that's hard to answer. You know, it is because I, 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 I think that uh, in my mind, the games were more like Denver Nugget games. Like now. That they were more up and down, and they right. were, you know, and there was just, you know, kind of, you know, the uh, the scores were always, you know, in the 120s or whatever, you <laughs> know. Yeah, I, did, I haven't had a, uh, I haven't had a good handle on what I watched when I was, a, you know, a kid compared to what I watch now, because half of what I watched then was always influenced. Like you mentioned, your dad. I wrote a piece last week on NBA.com about the the 82, 83 Sixers. Everything I remember is through the prism of how much my dad was yelling at the TV when the game was on anyway. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't remember a game that I watched before I was about 16 that didn't involve him talking over the announcer. I never heard the announcers. Right. I, I can't remember the last time I heard an announcer. <laughs> Chuck, what, what other sport do you think is most like basketball in terms of the connection that people that read about it, but more so now people that watch it, you know, that, that real intimate connection. You always hear fans talk about they feel closer to basketball than any other sport. You know, there's no helmet obstructing them. Mm-hmm. There's no, you know, there's the barrier between basketball, They're the, out the there fans in the court is so much. They're in their underwear, basically. I mean, <laughs> yeah, so much so you closer. Can see their body, yeah. I mean, in well, this country. Be, I mean, the, the sport that's most like it from that regard would be soccer, particularly yeah. like Premier League soccer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, NBA is unique, though, for a lot of reasons. Uh, I mean, the racial component makes it interesting because it's like this reversal of every other aspect of society, mm-hmm. where you know, where, uh, where, and and because of that, it does, you know, it's a lot of times it's really hard to write about the culture or the sociology of the NBA without talking about race, but sure. it's almost impossible. Right. Um, in the same way that if you're writing about soccer, or European soccer particularly, it's hard to write about it without talking about nationalism, and things, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. that's so central to it. Mm-hmm. Um, basketball has always uh, appealed, I think, uh, to a younger person than the other games. I, I often have seen statistics where 
when people when you when you ask people when you poll people what's their favorite sport, especially young males, will say basketball much more often than the television statistics would indicate. Mm. Uh, because I think people like the idea of basketball, or they associate themselves with having played basketball. Um, you know, it's it uh, for a lot of people just the idea of playing football growing up is is almost impossible. Like you know, but people feel like they can play basketball recreationally, and it's not that different than the kids on the high school team. You right. know? But if you play flag football, it's not like playing high school football. You know, mm-hmm. so I think that people feel as though that they intuitively understand basketball and to an extent baseball uh higher than other games you know that makes sense we it's funny you bring up that racial component with the nba mike micah hart our producer uh as we were walking down here to the studio we were arguing about television shows in you know currently and why in a country of this many millions of people our interests are scattered across the board and we're talking about some of these television shows and i was telling him i can't imagine Watching some of the shows I see highlights for, like, or see the commercials for now, like this, Lang and I are laughing about this outsourced in some of these shows. Like, mm-hmm. I don't understand who in the in the television community thinks these shows are going to resonate with more than the X number of people that watch them before in the two weeks before they cancel. I mean, well, you know, outsourced has done pretty well. Has it really? I mean, like, I, I mean, it's weird. I mean, like that show, like shit, my dad says, has done pretty well. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's really, you know, it's. Uh, television has become more interesting because it, as a whole and specifically at the upper tiers, like, it's improved so much. It's never been this good and this interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also so splintered that it's really hard. No show is really popular anymore. <laughs> I mean, like, you talk, it seems like everyone's talking about the last episode of Mad Men last night. But when you actually, it just, everyone on Twitter is. Because those are the only people kind of watching it. Like, you know, right. there's like 10 million people watching that. Um, right. You know, they... Or you know, I've mentioned this in other places, you know, remember that when the Osbournes were on MTV or when, like, The Simple Life was on, and there was mm-hmm. this sense, you would see it when, they were, when people would write about these shows, it's like, everyone's watching this show, you know, everyone, this is the show, everyone is, you've got to watch it because everyone is. And yet, the most popular show on television now isn't watched the way any given episode of Three's Company was watched. Because wow. there was only three networks then. Right. So if right. you were watching television, you know, they used to they used to talk about ratings and shared. You right. know, a show like MASH would have like, you know, a rating of fourteen point six with like a twenty eight percent share. So twenty eight percent of all televisions were watching MASH when it was on. They don't even use share as a category now except when talking about the Super Bowl. Because that's the only time the share is big enough to register. Because of DVRs and stuff? and Because of cable. Mostly. Cable, yeah, you got a and, million but channels. But DVRs, too. I yeah. mean, you know, just... I mean, yeah, that's, that's why all of the, like, you know, like I mentioned that Michigan State-Indiana State game, and, uh, you know, that that record will never be broken. Right. Like, you know, the last episode of MASH, that will never be broken for, for any kind of, uh, you know... Um, non-reality-based event. Yeah. Well, what do you – I mean, what do you – I don't I, – I'll admit right now, and I've admitted on, on the podcast here to not watching several uh, cultural phenomenons, I guess, in terms of uh, television shows that Lang and everybody else around here thinks is pretty funny. I've never seen Mad Men. I mean, what, what do people watch? Because I'm a DVR nut. I end up watching – I pay for 369 channels <laughs> on my cable, so I figure I better watch at least two minutes of every one of them in order to get my money's worth. 
Um, well, I, I don't. I don't know if you're getting a real bargain by doing that. That'd be, that'd be sort of like buying everything in the grocery store or taking one bite of everything. Going, I'm not satisfied. Saker, I just mean, think I want to taste everything. Saker does that too, though. And the thing is, though, that you just can't start watching it now. You've got to start from the beginning. That's mm-hmm. one difference. So a lot of times when these cultural events happen now, you can't jump into them. Right. You know, you couldn't jump into the last season of Lost. Right. There was just no, you know. Um, what do I watch? Well, okay, I, on Sundays uh, I watch Mad Men. Um, I watch Eastbound and Down. Yeah, that's funny. Um, I like that. Uh, Monday night I watch football. Tuesday I don't think I watch anything. <laughs> Wednesday I'll watch like uh, the Real World Road Rules Challenge. Um, I watch Survivor. Mm-hmm. Thursday I'll watch Thirty Rock. I watch The Office. Um, I watch It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and then I watch the football game on ESPN. Mm-hmm. Friday night, if Friday Night Lights is on, I watch. Uh, otherwise, usually I can't watch TV on Friday night. I'm usually doing something. But right. if I'm home, I, there's an ESPN game now. Saturday, I watch college football all day, and then we're back to Sunday. Right. When do you when do you watch like say you know basketball starting? When do you watch basketball? Is there a specific? well? What I tend to do is uh, I tend to watch the 10:30 <laughs> game because usually right. I watch television with my wife, and she falls asleep. Yeah. So I can watch the late game. So <laughs> I see almost thing. no East Coast games. Yeah, right. And I mean, I see the West Coast games. And honestly, I enjoy watching the West Coast games more. Although this year it'll be different because of the heat. I mean, mm-hmm. I think particularly early on in the year, there's go- that'll be you know people will watch heat games the way they watch the NFL. They will actually say like, hey, the Heat are on TNT or whatever this week. Let's watch it. You know, mm-hmm. and that, that's been a while since that has happened. Mm-hmm. I think the last time I really remember that happening was. The first time Jordan came back, mm-hmm. yeah, and people would sort of go out of their way to find those games, you know. We were, Chuck. We were talking uh, last week on the show about the fact that there was kind of a debate: who was the team of the past decade? You know, and uh, somebody—I I forget who it was. Somebody said that the, you know, there's an argument can be made, obviously, for the Spurs and for the Lakers because of the number of championships they won or whatever. It, we don't—I don't know that we have a. a era-defining team right now. I mean, could the Heat, you know, you figure these contracts are for the next six years, these guys could be the, the team that defines this era, couldn't they? If they live oh, up to any, anywhere near their I mean, they're, they're, you know, I, I mean, the team in the last decade, I guess I would say the Spurs solely because they were more like one team. You know, mm-hmm. the Lakers had kind of two different teams. They right. The team with Shaq and the team that didn't have Shaq, you know. <laughs> Uh, and that and that sort of changed the component of everything. Where the Spurs was always Robinson, and the, or I mean always Duncan with Robinson at first, and yeah. mainly with Ginobili and stuff. They seem like. In terms of the next decade, um, I mean they're they're obviously in the best position for that to happen. I mean they're the they're the only team I would say who ever was so consciously built for a dynasty. Yeah. Where in fact, anything less than a dynasty would be a failure. Yeah. If they had a decade the way, say, the Atlanta Braves had that decade, Thanks. where they won one <laughs> World Series and went to the World Series like three or four times, right. Right. which is a really weird feeling yeah. if you're a Braves fan because <laughs> you did win a championship and you had the best team, but somehow it doesn't – you know, it's not like the Bills where they didn't win at all. Right. Right. Times. They won one, and that's really all you can expect if, you're, if you love a franchise or you're part of a franchise. You can't say, I demand multiple championships. <laughs> right. You just can't have one. Right. I mean – so if the Heat were to win one title, lose in the title twice, lose in the Eastern Finals twice, I think that would be disappointing to a lot of people. Yeah. 
I think in some ways the Heat are already the defining team. I mean, as Chuck talked about, labor-wise, financially. Right. You know, th- I mean, that maybe this is going to define how this next decade is going to That's gonna, what I'm saying, you know? yeah. I'm, I, you've, we need somebody. That, like, I think the biggest part of it to me has been this is the first team you could really kind of get your you, – you could look at them and go, man, if, if this thing turns out the way they hope it does, they could be – the most loved and most hated team, like at the same time, like you need yeah. a villain to me to, to, yeah. to capture people's, you know, spirit, you you know, whether it's positive or negative, well, it will be hard for them to be the most loved. They could be the most popular. <laughs> right. Yeah. Most popular is probably a better I mean, way. Yeah. The Yankees are the most popular right, team, but right. they are not the most loved. Right. And this is sort of, you know, uh, this is sort of the, or the Cowboys are the most popular team, but not the most loved. It's kind of like that, you know, um, to I mean, to be the most loved team from a period, you have to be uh, the underdog to somebody. Right. You don't have to be the worst team, but you need to ha- you need to somehow sense that your success is earned over someone who, by rights, should beat you. you know? mm-hmm. right. I mean, that's in a way. I wonder if that's why, when you said the team of the last decade, why part of the reason I'm drawn to saying the Spurs over the Lakers, because the Lakers should have the advantage. They're in a better position to uh, to get free agents. Uh, they. They both have great coaches, but Phil Jackson is the best coach. Right. They had the most dominated center, dominating center, and then they still continue to have the most dominating perimeter player, and they have this long tradition and then the most titles. So, you know, the fact that really the Spurs and the Lakers have been so close seems like a testament to the Spurs, even right. though in truth all things are equal. I mean, you know, you can be rich anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Very good point. <laughs> Very good point. Chuck Klosterman joining us here on the Hangtime Podcast. As as much as we hate to do it, I guess we got to wrap it up and get out of here. They're gonna they're gonna kick us out of our studio, Chuck. But okay. uh, we listen. We appreciate it, man. We we were waiting to get a chance to chat with you, um, and we'll definitely be reading everything oh, yeah. well, that you any, do. Anytime so. you want, just give me a call. Thanks, All right, Chuck. man. Thanks, Chuck. Appreciate okay. it. Man. Take care. Bye bye. You know what? I'm I'm gonna have to curb my uh, TV watching here. I never heard it. My wife always gives me the business. About the fact that she never gets a chance. She's like, I can't watch TV with you. I got to get out of this room because you watch. You know, you don't watch commercials. You just want to flick past everything. Blah blah blah. You you just go up and down the dial nonstop. Because if it's not a game, mm-hmm. I'm not watch. I'm not watching. If it gets boring after three seconds, I'm turning the channel. Let alone a commercial. I don't watch. I don't do commercials. Yeah. Well, you should just tape everything and watch them later. <laughs> you should do everything. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, I gotta get going here, but thanks a lot for having me on here, guys. That's thanks, fun, Chuck. It's fun. All thanks, right, man. Yeah. See okay. you. Bye bye. Um, but yeah, so I, I'm definitely gonna, I'm definitely gonna do better, guys. I'm doing better. I'm, I'm doing better. Listen, Lang, the Hangtime Podcast keeps getting more and more interesting every time we turn around. We, we get this thing rolling. Um, I don't know where we're going from here, though. You, you're not gonna be. Are you gonna come back? I don't know. You're not gonna. You're never gonna come back. We'll see. You? We'll see how you treat me this week. <laughs> I mean, you're down south this week. You've come back to your roots. Yeah. You know, you're gonna be you're gonna be south of the Mason Dixon for at least the next week or so. Which, we'll see, maybe. Which see, I mean, we'll as far see, as you know, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> see if you don't get deported. <laughs> Same we'll see. off. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, Kevin Pelton uh, from Pro Basketball Perspectives joined us, and, and then uh, Chuck Klosterman, who was entertaining, is you know, as any guest we've had, it's funny. Uh, Micah. I don't know what to tell you, Micah. You, you've done a fantastic job 
of uh, tracking people down and getting people on the show. So how can, how can he's we, outdone himself now. Now he's got. Well, I don't know. How can we top this? That's next what I'm saying. Week? He's got. He's got to come even better than this next week. So the the heat is on. Micah Hart, our uh, super producer, Christy Craft. I, Christy, I know you. You've been laughing nonstop behind the glass over there. I'm not sure if you're laughing with me or laughing at me. I haven't figured that one out yet. A little Pro- bit of both. Probably, probably <laughs> mostly at you, <laughs> like the rest of us. Yes, exactly. I'm, I'm, I don't know how it turns out that I'm like the the butt of jokes on this on this podcast. It's not it's not a good feeling today. Uh, <laughs> it's gonna be the last time you let me in here. <laughs> exactly. This this setup won't be happening very often. <laughs> but listen, we we got to get out of here. But uh, please tune in again next week. Uh, and and check everything out uh, on NBA.com as well as Slam Online. Uh, Lang Whitaker, our, our uh, fabulous co-host, is in the building today, and hopefully we'll get him back in here again soon. Uh, Micah, Christy, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hang Time Podcast. To download more episodes of the show, visit the iTunes Music Store. Be sure to check out the Hang Time blog on NBA.com, and for more of Lang, visit SlamOnline.com. You can follow Seku and Lang on Twitter at SekuSmithNBA and Lang with it. The Smyrna Spartans have yet to get on Twitter, but we'll let you know when they do. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, Shoot that, shoot that! And even, Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply.